Welcome everyone to KCADV's certification series. You're listening to Module 1, History of the Domestic Violence Movement. Welcome everyone to KCADV certification series. This is module one, history of the domestic violence movement in Kentucky. And we're gonna steep back a little bit and talk um, a little historical perspective too. I'm really excited to be here today with Darlene Thomas, who's the executive director of Greenhouse 17, and Ann Perkins, who's the executive director of Safe Harbor in Ashland. And so this is sort of a monumental day. And I know we wanna talk about this podcast that it can kind of live and breathe beyond on today, but we did just elect our first woman and woman of color as vice president of the United States. It also is the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote. And so I just think that those are two critical pieces that we need to talk about and just sort of frame this rest of this conversation because our history is important as we have new advocates that are joining our sisterhood and our member programs across the state. We really want to make sure that they understand all the work that has been done before them and that they continue to lead from that position. So I'm sort of tossing that back over to you. But first, I guess, welcome. Hello, both of you. We're glad to be here. Thank you. Hi, yes. Darlene. Hi. Hello. I see you lots. Hi. I know. Hi. Hi. I love this crew. Yeah. 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 You so, know, Ann and I are here because we are the history. <laughs> we created history. Yeah. It's not that we know anything. We just kind no. of lived it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We've just lived it. Yeah. Just checking. Well, that was sort of the exciting piece as we were getting ready before the podcast started and we were sort of writing notes. I think it would really be much more interesting for folks that are listening in just to kind of eavesdrop a bit on a conversation between the two of you because you often were in the room when things were happening or you were talking to people who were in the room. I don't mean to age or date you all, but you have some years in the work, both over 20, 30 plus years and in a previous position with the YWCA. We were talking about the importance of YWCAs and women's rights and and the movement of voting rights and, and even like childcare. So all issues that sort of pertain to women. So why, I guess, just to kind of begin the conversation with the two of you, why is the history so important for our new young advocates to kind of grasp a hold of? Well, from my perspective, I see as looking at where we were and seeing where we are and then figuring out where do we want to be. And I think you can do that through that historical perspective, understanding really, in my opinion, a relatively short time that we have made such strides for, especially for women and children in this, in the United States and even in our states. So, you know, I just visited my aunt who turned 101 years old in October, and she has talked about how she's been involved. She actually worked for the Board of Elections in Ohio for probably 30 some years. So from her perspective of where women's vote was and our rights, you know, was really fascinating for me to hear in her words from the last hundred years on how, you know, women have evolved. So I just think that we uh, need to remember, like I said, where we come from, what our history is and uh, where we are right now and and try to, make, you know, make a plan on where do we want to be in the next 20 to 50 years. Yeah. I totally agree. You know, you don't know where you're going until you know where you came from a little bit. Or you can be taken off track pretty quickly if you don't stay solid footing or keep a solid footing in the movement and what that means. But to understand that knows too, you know, nobody gets anywhere alone. And so, you know, myself are standing on the shoulders of tremendous advocates who came before us, you know, and and did it. So we, we have to honor the work and who's done it. And then we can figure out how we fit in it and where we go forward. I know I had sort of the pleasure, Darlene, actually being with you when we went to a women's march in Washington about four years ago. And I had been to another women's march back in probably the early 90s. And both times I really wasn't in a position to hear the speakers. There was so many people there. I couldn't get up close to the stage. And after sort of getting through the initial disappointment of that, looking around and seeing the sea of people of their different stories of what brought them to that place at that moment at that time, I remember very clearly meeting a, a gentleman whose wife was not feeling well and he felt the need to be there to represent her. In a march that I went to in the 90s, there was a woman who was wearing the suffragette boots that she wore in the women's right to vote 
back in the early 1900s, you know, the 1920s. And you just sort of became, you know, just, I don't know, awe-stricken. You know, you were just sort of aghast at seeing these, well, aghast is a negative word, and, you know, just in awe of the power of so many people and people that just were regular folks, right? They were coming to work, they were doing their thing, but they just were showing up constantly for moving the needle just a little bit further for women's rights. And so, I don't know. I think what that did for me, it's almost hard to put it in words. It was that powerful um, to be a part of that group. And you saw these older women going, why am I still doing this? Like I just did this 40 years ago. <laughs> Here we are again. So you you honor them because then you got to see historically that there were people before you that were doing it. And then to be a part of this movement. And it was about equal rights and it was about justice issues and it was about human justice, much beyond not even just women's rights. Right. It was all inclusive. And that's when I first in all these years doing this work and so celebrating women. But it's the first time and there was tons of wonderful men as part of this movement. But I thought it really was about women going to change this world really will be the women and the people who will follow And that's just how I felt going to that. Like, I just didn't realize my own power as a woman until I saw all of us together with these incredible men right alongside of us. So I don't know. It it was an amazing experience. I don't know if I'll ever feel that again. Well, I grew up in the 60s and 70s as far as maturing and being in college and, you know, first getting married, all that kind of thing. It didn't dawn on me at the time when I was that young that women still had so far to go. You know, I couldn't get a credit card when I was in high school or college. Uh, They didn't, you know, they didn't let women get. That still is kind of mind boggling that I'm old enough to know that I grew up in an era where women... Women, you know, really couldn't really own property. They weren't the CEOs of the company. They were, you know, they had their place. I can't tell you how many meetings I went to when I took over the YWCA and I went out into the community and uh, talking to, you know, business people about supporting, you know, the Y and that kind of thing. And, And I actually at the time had men who looked at me and said, like, why are you doing this? You know, why aren't you home? You've got a you've got a baby. You've got a newborn baby at home. Why aren't you at home taking care of your newborn baby? Why are you doing this? You know, why are you here? And I was so taken back by even having that question because I was there. It was my first big job. You know, I'd never been a a CEO before. I was in my 30s and I just thought, man, oh, man, somebody's asking me what I'm doing here and why am I why I'm not home changing diapers. You know, I, I was dumbfounded. But so, yes, we have come a long way and it makes me feel old. A lot of times saying, well, back in the day, you know, but it, you know, it's, it's in my lifetime, you know, and I don't feel as a, as a woman, I have no different feelings today than I did when I was 30 years old. Am I older, creakier and all that? Yes, I am. But do I still have that inner passion to, you know, move us forward and bring us, you know, into the 21st century? I mean, I said this on a, uh, Facebook post last night, people were talking about the glass ceiling and all that. And I think uh, Mark Murphy had a really uh, neat cartoon, if you've ever followed Mark Murphy. Uh, he's a Courier Journal cartoonist in, in Louisville, and he's a friend of mine. He grew up with me, actually. His parents and my parents were best friends. But I said, you know, well, we've been in this position for thousands and thousands of years. It's just taken us a while for the majority to acknowledge us. You know, it's been that long. You know, we've always been on this planet. You know, we've always been on. We've always been here. But it's just taken us till, you know, 2020 for the majority of people in the United States to give a hoot and say, oh, yeah, you deserve to be a vice president of the United States and a woman of color. And, you know, it, it is still, like I said, mind boggling to me that we're in this position today, thousands of years later of being on this planet. It reminds me a little bit of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. We lost her this year just recently, actually, too. But she said that about her dissents. She said one of her dissents were almost as important as the other because she hoped at some point history would catch up. So she was always really clear to write her reasoning behind dissent because she would hope in 10, 20, 30 years that history and our movement, our progress would would reach and she would have some lasting you know, guidance, I think, for folks when they when they finally got to the point that she was at ahead of the game, you know. 
So it's, you know, a, a call a little bit to advocates that are listening right now. You know, do know that there are women that are all around you, your mothers, your aunts, your sisters, your neighbors, the women that we work with. Like we're collectors of stories in our advocacy role. It's what we do. But look at women in their whole and in their entirety and take a little time, you know, go back and call, you know, your mom and talk about were you ever denied getting a credit card? Were you ever, you know, what was what was that like back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know? begin to have that conversation. It's always weird to me because I could be a parent to most of the kids now, you know, where I, I don't think of that. But, you know, begin to start collecting how small acts can really do sort of amazing things. And then on another shift, there's some really amazing women that I know the two of you really look towards when you're doing intimate partner violence work. And so I thought it would be, as we're encouraging folks to talk to the daily folks in our lives, who are some of those other folks that you would recommend that advocates read about, listen to, check out because they are sort of the mothers of this work that we've been we've been doing. Darlene, I'm going to look at you because I know who you're going to say. I'm, there might be it. others, but I know who you're going to say. Well, actually, there's been a tremendous amount of women and men who brought a lot to this work and will continue to hopefully along the in this journey because it truly is a journey. But for me, it's, you know, it's got to be Ellen Pence. <laughs> And Ellen Pence was one of the first, probably why we even have Power and Control Wheel, was Ellen Pence and her group at one point in time. She then moved on and helped do community, you know, assessments and figuring out how to create systems change in organizations for not just organizationally, but also throughout an entire community. So she did that for many years. She also was one of the first to do batter's treatment intervention. And no matter how we feel about that per se, it has been critical work for survivors at least to, to look if there's a possibility for batter's intervention to begin to work, have some success. Because until battering stops, you know, you know, until predominantly males change that behavior, then we don't really end intimate partner violence. So the thought that she was willing to go and look in that direction when not a lot of people were wanting that at the time just meant she was a leader. She was just brilliant. She just, she could see 20 years ahead of what was coming. She really should be honored. She's kind of noted as the Woman, but there's been a lot of women along the way. I think one person that comes to mind, just state of Kentucky, and it's our own Sherry Kearns. I mean, when she started her position here as the first director for our coalition, you know, I remember going to visit her when I was the director of the YWCA. Judge Peggy Patterson, who is actually the first woman federal judge in the state of Kentucky, took me to Sherry's office, which was in a, a garage apartment in an alley in downtown Lu or, uh, Frankfurt. Mm -hmm. And Peggy said, she said, I want you to meet Sherry Kearns and we're going to go, I'm going to take you to Frankfurt and we're going to lobby on the protective orders, you know, in the state. And I went, okay. I mean, like I said, I was young. It was my first job. She was a friend of mine, but she was on the board at the YWC or at the YWCA when I, you know, went on that board and became the director. So she actually is who brought me to Frankfurt pretty much my first time and met Sherry Kearns. I have to say, from even a historical perspective, I hate to say it's in my lifetime, but it's in our lifetime that Sherry's just retired from this position after what 37 years or 35 yeah as leading this cola and so she took us really from ground zero as a state and brought us forward just through i think a lot of she was just a tenacious uh, i don't take no for an answer kind of personality which you know really let us down a pretty strong path, I think, as far as the state of Kentucky is concerned, as being a forefront agency for change for domestic violence and sexual assault in the United States. I think a lot of things kind of came together. And, you know, once the first shelter was open, which was 1977 in Louisville, under the Y, because most all shelters right. and rape crisis programs and yeah. children's centers and things yeah. like that were pretty much Y-centered, or that's who was willing to take a risk and explore what needed to be done. We didn't know how to run shelters in 1977. Louisville Shelter came about four years after the first shelter in the country. So it was a new movement. But once Louisville opened theirs, and then Lexington was about 18 months behind Louisville, and those two, um, there began to be co you know collaborative efforts. 
to start because what happened in historically is before that we knew there was a problem, but we did not have a forum to hear the voices of survivors per se. And then you start to open shelters and here you are with 20 or 30 survivors and they're telling you the gaps, what's missing, what, why they can't leave, why they can't, why they need to go back home because they're, you know, you're not going to get custody or you're not going to get child support or you're not going to have financial means or you're, you know, not going to be safe because the police are still telling people to, you know, cool off, take a walk or, you know, around the block and, and, you know, quit calling the police or we'll take you both to jail kind of stuff, right? And so we began to see those early advocates, the, the Pam Johnsons of the world, who I have to yeah. mention, who is uh, an incredible and still is an incredible person, but was incredible in Louisville and was the first advocate hired for the Center for Women and Families. And they didn't even know how to answer a phone. They were terrified of a phone. <laughs> but I find that funny because we're still afraid of the phone. We like are. new advocates yes. are still afraid of that phone of what's going to be on the other end and am I going to be enough as an advocate? And it was people like Pam and other, you know, women who sat there that took that risk to answer those phones and hear those stories. And then we started to see what needed to change. And then you have people, you got, you had to garner, you know, state leaders where we have Marshall Long at that time, who was incredible, Gerda Bindle, who helped look at legislation and protective orders and things like that. And then Sherry Kearns comes along, and that's because really the two or three, four or five programs in the beginning wanted to make sure that we had a program in every ad district. And that took, you know, about six, seven, eight years to occur. And then we needed the leader. And then they all came together and created it and made it happen. And it was really kind of un out I mean, of it was out un, of nothing. Was out really. of nothing. Out of nothing. And most shelters, yeah. you know, most states aren't designed like Kentucky, right? Yeah. Like most states just have shelters in metropolitan areas, the big cities or the larger cities where, you know, in Kentucky, we make sure that everybody has access. It'd be great if we could have one in every county. People always want one in their county, but they're expensive. Right. We don't need them in every county. But we do need to have rural women have access. Well, the beauty, I think, of Kentucky is that we have that single focus coalition that made an effort to strategize how we can provide equitable services across the state, which they chose the avenue of you know, utilizing the ad districts. So that was their methodology for making sure that I think that we had equal access across the state by using the ad districts as the way to do it. And the only the only thing you have, I think that's even, you know, that's worrisome about that is because you have so many pockets of rural isolated parts that are really not desperately far away sometimes, even from your two urban cities, which is Lexington and Louisville. So that, to me, is, I think, the beauty of how Kentucky foresaw the way of being kind of, like I said, equitable in services across the state is using that format that they chose that was really pretty brilliant, in my opinion, because most other states don't have that kind of methodology going on. They're kind of a hit and miss, you know, a shelter started here and a shelter started there, whereas Kentucky was very, I think, concerted how we did it. Well, I think what happened, you know, Kentucky created, (coughs) back in those days too, they were deinstitutionalizing mental health hospitals, right? And so Kentucky created mental health, community mental health model to make sure that they had access to services. So they kind of duplicated that for rape crisis and domestic violence when that movement went forward, which was quite brilliant and has worked really well, I think, for survivors. Uh, and there's very few states like us and those that are because they emulated us. Kentucky, I think, too, led the nation for many, many years. Like It was an exciting time when I came into this work in the late 80s. It was incredible, the movement that was taking place. You know, shortly after we were working, it took us forever, of course, to get rape, marital rape laws passed in the state. It was like eight years of a battle. But then we faced that again later. We don't give up easily around here. We just keep going back till we get our way. But there was movement. We had national movement. You had VAWA going on. You know, Clinton had taken place and President-elect Biden was really instrumental in helping do VAWA. Whether you agree or disagree always with VAWA, because I think most good things kind of have a double-edged sword. I mean, you look at history, the good things that come, there's also a, a negative. There can be a negative to them as well. But it was an exciting time. Things were changing and moving, and we expanded protective orders. And, you know, we were looking at child support, visitation, and all that was finally accepted in protective orders. And that's really what survivors needed to be able to f- begin to free themselves of the violence 
environments that they were trapped in were those next steps. And, and we just had a lot of footing nationally and here. And then, you know, after the 90s, we kind of were told, you remember the saying? I remember standing down there in Frankfurt and the, one of the legislators said, you women got enough. Don't come back here again. You're not getting any more. And we were all just like, what? Way behind. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. We just got enough. But in it, they were serious. It was a lot of years before we, and then we spent the next 10 years just battling bad legislation, like trying to undo the harm that legislation was going to do to our population and minorities and you know, children, custody, all kinds of stuff. And then well, we're we kind of on an upward track again, I think, a little bit. We were also being accused of dismantling the family, yeah. that we were the vehicle to tear families apart by allowing women to leave a bad situation, you know, to be seen as somebody that was tearing down the family. Well, that is also kind of a mind boggling idea that here we were trying to preserve the family, but a whole section of the community saw us as being the, you know, the perpetrator of, you know, taking, you know, or destroying the family. You know, so that I think was a big part of what we fought against, especially when we were getting started in the early ages, as far as the 80s and the 90s, is trying to debunk the issue that we were tearing families apart rather than trying to keep them together to be able to move on and not live in such an abusive situation. So, you know, the perspective is reality. And so I think it's also an educational issue that we've really worked hard on as far as the state's concerned. What happened to you, if you remember, Anne, was the Herald leaders to having to harm. Yes. Do you remember that? That was that was an that egg. was a landmark, like for that, for the state and where it was going to go. And then it, all this money kind of poured in federally to do different legislations that came out in the '90s because this research to having to harm. I think that was the name of it. it to was, having to harm. It won the Pulitzer. It yeah. won a Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. That's correct. And it just was instrumental when we started to. We were kind of being seen, even though we had this mandatory reporting part of our legislation that people didn't like. Everything else that was happening kind of broke wide open after that. I also think that we also began actually documenting for the first time how this evolution took place and we realized that it's generational you know for most families you know domestic violence and sexual assault were a, was a generational issue along with poverty and education and all that so when we started actually documenting uh, the research to back up our gut feelings because really and truly in the beginning all we had were gut feelings we didn't have data and research really out there it was so anecdotal yes so yeah. when we actually got the research going as far as backing up our assertions that this was a generational thing and how were we going to break that cycle then you know that's when we became what I would consider relevant and had a foothold on why we actually did need to be doing this concerted effort through our state and through the United States. Right. And we got a lot of footing, too. I, you know, I think KCADV has a tremendous amount of respect. I want advocates to know that, that it really, yes, you know, Sherry is, was central to that. She's a brilliant strategist when it came to legislation, but also when it came to public policy. And so what happened is KCADV just really did garner a lot of influence you could say, across the board. I mean, people wanted us to be their friend in this movement, and it was important. So, you know, we were able to help do, you know, one of the first groups to do clemency and get people, get battered women who were only there because they took the life of their partner because that was the only way they were going to be free from the violence that they were enduring. So we were one of the first groups to successfully get women you know, to have clemency or eventually were pardoned, but not early. Early on, it was a clemency act. So we were able to do and, tremendous things because of our influence. And we did that methodically also. We did, we researched all of those women who had murdered their partners or husbands so that it wasn't necessarily you know, just an act of violence that came out of nowhere. It was years and years of abuse that put those women in that kind of life uh, sustaining 
moment when they knew it was either their life or the perpetrator's life, you know. So we didn't do it randomly. We researched and made sure that, and I hate to say that these women were deserving of clemency, but they were deserving of clemency. They were deserving of pardons because of what they had endured. So, you know, we backed up, we did the homework, we did the work that I think is what the strength of our current being is, you know, we started out, like I said, you know, from ground zero back in the late 70s and early 80s. But we actually, I think, were very thoughtful in the way our state thought through how we're going to make our case to prove our value to this state and this country by let's eliminate violence in our lifetime. And nobody had ever said that before. Nobody had ever taken up that mantra before that we want to eliminate domestic violence and sexual assault in our lifetime. I think we did later, we came across with, you know, tobacco and, and you know, drunk driving and all those kinds of things. But nobody had ever really said we want to eliminate domestic violence. So. It's hard to be out front and say you're for violence in the home, right? You know, right. so so there was that. But I do know with the monumental amount of legislation and conversations that were going on in the late 80s and 90s, which you all have been listing, you know, protective orders, warrantless arrests, full faith and credit. Attorney General Janet Reno comes and says Kentucky's going to be the, the model laboratory of things. You know, Vine starts coming up, Link starts coming up, which is law enforcement's network, you know, all these things. And I know you responded a little bit to the backlash that sometimes, you know, you're against family values and you're pro-divorce and all these pieces. But I imagine to maintain, to maintain that mo- momentum and that movement, you had to make amazing allies and probably do a lot of reaching across to, to maybe, un- I always sort of call them unusual suspects. Like you kind of know who's going to be at the table. But what was sort of the philosophy then? I know we had governor's task force, right? So we had people kind of coming together, sexual assault program did. But was there anything, any interesting stories around, you know, how you sort of build bridges with folks or that you knew that KCADB had built bridges with folks to kind of move forward that agenda that needed beyond just the domestic violence programs? Well, I think Governor Patton gave us a lot of credibility when he created, you know, the Office for Domestic Violence. I think that was a very big legitimizer, or if that's even a word, I don't know. But when he did that, you know, I think that helped solidify our value in the state of Kentucky as far as we need you need to listen to us. You know, we're the experts. We kept telling everybody, we're the experts. Well, yeah, you know, that that's easy. You know, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. But we put, I think, the money where our mouth was when Governor Patton said, this is really an important issue and, and we're going to we're gonna make a concerted effort to back this organization up. And I think that was that was kind of a tipping point from my perspective on how we could legitimize who we were and what our mission was. Well, there's been a, a lot. I totally agree. There's been leadership from a state level that can really help legitimize the work and what we're doing. I think, though, for me, those little light bulb moments that happen so having to do, been a part of the legislation committee, legislative committee, and I've both been doing that for years and, and going into Frankfurt or whatever, is finally just kind of let go of who's labeled conservative and who's not. You know, I mean, yes, we might take for granted that maybe those that are, you know, consider themselves more progressive or Democrats are probably going to follow what we would like to do. But you know what? There's tremendous leadership on both sides many times. It just takes a while sometimes for them to see what that's going to look like. So there's these aha. I remember in dating violence, we were having a hard time <laughs> getting people to understand the fact that intimate partner violence does not discriminate. It doesn't care you care if you have a marriage license or not, right? It does not matter. But that sense of preserving the family still and, you know, who really needs protected and this. What I have found that most people who are in leadership roles really do want to protect they do believe that their role is to protect its, you know, its residents of its community kind of thing. But those aha moments and, and you know, one in particular, we were sitting there and all of a sudden I, I remember this particular legislator. He just kind of he slammed his hands on his table. He, and he sat back and out. We've been talking for 
hours in this small group and he's brought this group together and he's trying to get it. And finally, I can't remember what was said now, but he just slammed his head on the table and he goes, oh my gosh, I have it. And I swear he repeated exactly what Sherry Kearns and I had said for the last two hours in this meeting with him. And he just finally got it. And from then on, he was our champion in everything. You know, like, so it's like truth. You know, truth is when it kind of comes to you and you have this heightened awareness now, whether it's about intimate partner violence or race or gender or any of these things, when you have those moments, then you become a champion of it. And I think we've been blessed to have lots of those moments. Sometimes it takes a while to get there, but usually I just need to trust somewhere in my gut that people want to do the right things. People do not want to see men, women, or children hurt in their relationships. People do not want to open their papers and see that someone yet again was murdered or a life was taken or it was a you know, a homicide, suicide situation with children in the house. Those are things. And our legislators and our community leaders are supposed to be protecting us. So I think there's probably been a hundred or more kind of moments, people who've made, they came along at a very critical time when we needed them most to do it, you know, just like the Herald Leader did when we really needed that. And Louisville Louisville had one of the first fatality reviews and did a major report, which shifted the entire state and what they were looking for, even in fatalities. And we had Mary Byron, unfortunately, who passed away, who was murdered, which changed the country and how we notify victims. And that happened in the state of Kentucky. You know, Kentucky took action and the right people at the right time. And sometimes we fall a little short, but we, we seem to always get there. I think it's always important for folks that are listening. And I'm I'm so glad that you said that because I do think there can be a tendency to leave people behind by presuming they're never going to be our ally. They're never going to be part of our work. They're never going to be part of the solution. And I think we can make a lot of error in that way. You know, so if you're an advocate that's just starting out doing this work, you know, look out into your community, look out into your courts, look out into your other nonprofits, like look into those programs and don't presume someone's never going to be on your team because sometimes you have to sit with someone for two hours and they might finally have the aha moment. Sometimes you have to say the same message seven times. Sometimes they find that somebody in their family has experienced it and then the light bulb comes on, right? So, you know, slowly we can begin to sort of turn the tide a little bit. And I think it's always critical not to presume these folks are always against us. And that's the important thing, Diane, is when we talk a lot about keeping one foot in the system and one foot out, right? I think the most, the reason I am so engaged with KCADV and how it's been is that it is a group of integrity. It's imperfect, right? Right. All of us are in this work, but it is one of integrity. And we've made hard decisions. We've not supported legislation that people would have assumed we would have supported. And we have not. And that's not easy because you've got, you know, leaders pushing it, you know, through the Senate and the House. And you're going, we cannot be a part of that at this moment. But if we do things with integrity and with voice and we never lose sight of why we're doing what we're doing, and it's not about power and it's not about privilege. It's about bringing voice, being that mouthpiece for survivors who can't bring that to the table themselves. If we don't lose sight of the who and the why we're doing this, then we will always come at that end of integrity. And that's what I would ask all advocates, like understand your history, understand it. Don't lose sight of the why ever, because it'll keep you grounded in the work, even when it's tough decisions that can tear you apart inside, not sure if you've made it or not, but if you do it with integrity, and I think KCADV does and has, I think that's why we're where we are. I think so too. And I, oh, can I just, but we'll go back to what you were going to say, Ann, but I think it's one of the things too in the integrity and how KCADV has tried to operate and add legitimacy to the work, to the, being the expert in the field, to being referred to. I wanted to make sure at some point we talk a little bit about, about being part of the member program and about victim service standards, which we now call member program service standards. And it is a daunting document, right? It, it's it it's is. hefty. You know, it's a, it's, it's our a, constitution. It's our constitution. It is our constitution. Yeah. And, and I, how late were we up? And we were up till one o'clock in the morning working on it. It and, is a beautiful thing. In the morning. And it's a fluid document because it has changed in the last 20 years. Not drastically, but as things evolve and our services evolve, then we have to evolve. And I think we've been mindful of that. 
on and a that's regular funny. basis. I'm so sorry because I can remember that meeting when we finally finalized the. It was one o'clock in the morning. I think it was later. Yeah. It felt much later. If it wasn't, let me tell you, it was late, and we had been working on it since nine that morning or since something. Nine like we started that morning. that morning. Yeah. And I'm telling you, but what's beautiful about this is this group of people who sometimes, I mean, you know, there were a few going, "I'm leaving. Y'all are full of it. We cannot do this. It's too much to ask." And you know, because you're just exhausted from this whole measure. But every one of us knew it was going to be important. Yeah. Like if we were going to take on the contract and the state was going to trust us with that integrity, we had to hold ourselves in some, you know, to in account for what we were going to take right. on. We were being kind of forced to take on, quite honestly. But, boy, we did get through it. And it has not changed very much. No. It was a pretty brilliant it's piece cha- of work. It's changed as some a technology of, has changed, yeah. you know. or But not the core. But not the core. No, you know, I say this all the time. To me, domestic violence and sexual assault is a nonpartisan issue. It takes no hostages as far as whether you're a Democrat or Republican or black or white or Asian or educated or non-educated or rich or poor. It doesn't matter. It takes everybody. And I think that's where sometimes we as a, a state and we as a country get bogged down in trying to make it partisan politics when it should be a human rights issue, a social justice issue, and something that every single person can actually say, this is the way we want this world to be. And this is what we're going to do to make it happen. And until we all embrace that, and until we all say, you know, it, I don't care what party you belong to. We want to end domestic violence and sexual assault in our lifetime. Period. 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 I love For this. Go, I love this quote. I said it to you all before, but just because you said that right then, I wasn't quite sure how to sneak it in, but I knew I would somehow. I like this, and I apologize that I don't know who said it. I kind of tried to look it up, but it says it is always critical to keep our feet solidly in the camps that are pushing for equal rights and human justice. Yeah. So we are here dealing with violence against women. We are here dealing with violence in the home, intimate partner violence. But with that, it is a social justice, human justice it's a human rights movement issue. worldwide. Yeah. It yes. is. Yeah. And it's we have lots of human rights exactly. Yes. <laughs> but it is definitely yeah. one of them. Yeah. And, and I, you have to look at it more broadly, too. You know, you can get stuck in just the one lens, but all of it affects, you know, survivors come to us as whole people, not parts of people. And the part that has been victimized is what we know well, but they also come to us with a whole host of other pieces of themselves that we have to look at. And that's that's what makes it the human rights issue. It's much bigger yeah. in a sense. So we have to have our feet in those camps yes. as well. Yeah. And I think, as as you all said, victim service standards, the core of it has not changed greatly. Yeah. Member program service standards, but which it's now called. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably going through that certification. But I do think what it's done in the beginning, right? You kind of, as you said, we didn't know really quite what we were doing. We didn't quite know how to open a shelter. We didn't quite know how to do it. We know how to do those things now. There's discussion and debate a little bit, but we basically know we have information behind it. But I think where I've seen member program service standards evolve is making sure that we're naming things and giving access to things. So it was in the document. You had to have some good faith presumption that it was in the document, right? That people had access to services. But now we're kind of able to look at it in a little more I don't know, uh, a more, a broader net. We're like, we're casting a wider net to make sure that everybody who needs our services knows that there is a seat at the table for them in our programs, you know? Um, And that's where I like the expansion. And I think it, I think those, I think it hits things head on. Well, it's had to expand. I mean, the, the population, I mean, when I started 30 some years ago, it looked a lot different, you know, who was coming to shelter, who was accessing services compared to today. And it seems to me there's much more vulnerability for people who are coming to shelters today. We managed to solve some, not solve, but we managed to put things in place that help move people quickly. We could keep them housed. We could quickly rehouse them. Like we've been addressing these issues in different ways in order to help survivors move from crisis to self-sufficiency. 
So what we're seeing is really vulnerable populations more than ever, not just about intimate partner violence, but substance abuse and mental health, those things that we're now tackling in shelter, which was not necessarily, I mean, you know, 30 some years ago, if you had a shelter of 25, you might have one or two that were struggling with addiction issues and and chronic homelessness. And that is not the case today. So you're right. This, the member standards have had to evolve because we want to be accessible and we need to make sure that we are serving the most need. You know, the people who need us the most are the hardest to serve. Yes. Right. Yeah. And so what we try to make sure that we've opened that. And as we've learned, you know, the needs of non-English speaking residents of our communities and, you know, we we're learning and we keep opening and broadening LGBTQ communities and understanding, you know, transgender, you know, all this it's not new, it's but it's been evolving and we want to be in the you know, leading that effort. And also getting back a little bit to our roots, as one of you all said in the very beginning of our civil rights. So, you know, making sure that 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 door is open for people of color. Mm -hmm. So yeah, lots of conversation. I just want to kind of throw this out too. you know, a lot of times we've been seen as putting a bandaid on domestic violence and sexual assault in our state and in our country. And what I want to say to you know, this group from a historical perspective, we're not going to make great inroads, in my opinion, until we create a level playing field for all of our community. And when I talk about a level playing field, I'm talking about educational playing field, job playing field, uh, resource and access to resources in the playing field. That's the one missing link that the state of Kentucky, in my opinion, until we raise the level of accessibility to way of life that's sustainable, uh, not poverty level, not not the bottom of the barrel in education, not the bottom of the barrel in, in job opportunity, until we bring that level up, we still are going to be working for a long time in this field because the people that need us the most are the ones who have the least access to crawl out of that situation. So we've got to make sure that families have access to life-sustaining jobs, educational opportunity that brings them out of it. And until we get to that level, we're all still, in my opinion, big business as far as domestic violence and sexual assault, because that's the folks who fall in the cracks that keep that generational issue going on for themselves, going on for their children and going on for their grandchildren. Because I've been there long enough now that I'm seeing the grandchildren of women who walk through my doors and they'll look at me and go, oh, Miss Perkins, do you remember me? I was here when I was like six years old and like this is the greatest place that I ever remember as a child. And I, it breaks my heart. And I say, all I can say, honey, is I'm just so glad you're here. I'm just so glad you're here. And she's there as a young mother now with her children, bringing that, you know, bringing those memories to me. So I say we got a lot of work to do. You know, we aren't breaking that cycle for those families until we raise that family. I agree. I, I mean, I think there's that piece of what the work that we have to do left. I also think in, you know, no, Anne feels the same way. We really need to celebrate the fact that a lot of our families aren't coming back anymore. Yeah. A lot of our families are breaking the cycles. We are, we have been able to lift them out yeah. with our services and our programs and providing housing and education. But that's education because we've made a concerted because, effort. That's right. Because we weren't just three meals and a bed. That's right. We understood that that family needed that infrastructure, so we got them into schools and we got them into college and we helped them find jobs. And that, to me, is where this coalition and the historical perspective of where we were, you know, three hots and a cot, supposedly, as Helen Kitten would say, you know, (laughs) that's we've come a long way. We've come a long way, but we've still got a long way to go because we're still falling way below where we should be as a state. And the only way I know how to do that is build that infrastructure, which is funding opportunities for jobs and safe homes, 
you know, safe places to live and education. So I think, like I said, from a historical perspective, we still got a lot of work to do. And I think it was one of you all that said, you know, we did sort of have that heyday in the 90s, right? But there has been sort of this, I think, Darlene, it was you that said that we seem to be in a little bit of a resurgence the past few years because there has been a lot of positive legislation that is pretty recent. And I really want new folks to know that too, because sometimes a law passed and you just presume it's always been on the books, but strangulation, ending mandatory reporting, dating violence, all of the housing and economic work, like that is sort of relatively new in the 2010, maybe, yes. and, and after. So, you know, we're just sort of enjoying, reaping the joy of that piece. I guess we're a little bit of a place to kind of close. I don't know if there's any messages for new advocates that are sort of embarking on this journey of advocacy um, and inviting them into the sisterhood with sort of that philosophy of, you said, kind of keeping one foot in, you know, the system and one foot out. But we have a lot of advocates that I think have one system in the community, but not in the shelter where the daily work gets done and vice versa. It can get really overwhelming while you're doing shelter work and you're doing intake and room changes and, you know, doing that. And you tend to forget what's going on, the importance of what's going on on the community. You know, you you want to have a little bit of an of a connection, I think, to both happening. It's hard to do good let. This is what I'm trying to say. It's hard to do really good legislation if you don't know the daily experience of the families that we're helping. And it also can get really overwhelming if you get stuck in the daily and you don't see the progress that's being made. Well, that's why history is important, right? That's really where the history comes. Because I hear young advocates all the time going, our police need training. Our judges need training. And we were the first state nation who mandated law enforcement training. And and it continues to today. So knowing the history, knowing where you came from, where you've been, you know, and I always tease when I, you know, have trained, um, well, not really tease, but when I talk about to new advocates, you know, things, the fact that you're even in the courtroom is because most of us were kicked out of the courtrooms and kicked out of the counties and we're told you couldn't come back. Like I literally was kicked out of a county by a judge and said, I don't ever want to see you again. And the police escorted my car out of that county at that time. And all I did was challenge prosecutor who was going to prosecute a woman for getting beaten up and almost drowned in the pool because she went home. And so they were offering him a protective order because she went home. And I go, are you kidding me? Of course, this was young. I was young and probably didn't choose my language quite as well as I do today. But, you know, I'm like, are you kidding me? We're back in that day. I mean, (laughs) that we're blaming victims and they're like out of my county. You know, they take me to the judge and I get reprimanded. That's a story, but they're allowed. And we fought because of that and being strip searched and stories that happened to young advocates back then don't happen today. Like courts can't throw you out of the courtroom. That's because of we had to fight hard for victims to have a safe person with them at all times throughout this process. It was not an easy win, but even the privilege, counselor privilege, you know, we police don't even bother our shelters hardly anymore. No. They know better. You're not well, coming there, are, there. We're not telling you anything. We're not giving you anybody. It's been a long road to create allies in the justice cabinet, in my opinion. You know, 35 years ago, when I walked into my very first meeting with Judge Patterson, who was a lawyer at the time, and the judge started the whole meeting, he says, I've got a joke for you. Women are just like copy machines. The more you touch them, the more they put out. And that's how we started that meeting. My first meeting with a judge over domestic violence. I was like dumbfounded. That's how he started the meeting. I've got a joke for you. Yeah. So we have come a long way. We've got a lot of work to do. And I think, you know, we're just, we're at a threshold for either moving us, you know, forward, or I certainly don't want to take two steps back. I cannot imagine with the two of you in this room that we'll be taking two steps back. <laughs> I, I would be hard pressed to sort of believe that. And and with, you know, the folks that are up at KCADV and, you know, we've just have a new crew of folks that are at our shelter program and, you know, they're you know, they're young and they're new in the work, but their passion is there, which is always, you know, good to see. And so, yeah. Yeah, I don't think we're going to go two steps back. Like, But Anne and I aren't going to be here forever or other directors around this table. It really is about these young advocates knowing their history, becoming engaged and excited about it and understanding that it's the the day-to-day of the work can feel really heavy until you understand that you fit into a much larger picture. It's called activism. It is called 
taking action and not take a no for an answer and how to appropriately not to take no right and how how to be nice And not take no for Not an break your relationship, but still hold <laughs> your ground. Right? Challenge them. You know, I, you know, I was at the Louisville program one time, and I'll have all these police there, and they're all mad at me because I took in a woman from another state that really was the only survivor of a witness. So there was like four or five people witnessed a murder in this other state, and she, they had all been killed except her. I know it sounds like a movie, but it was that's what happened. And they were trying to hide her within two or three hours, trying to keep her alive until hopefully they could prosecute who they believed had taken the other people's lives. But long story short, you know, they're all there because this group found her within hours of her being in our shelter at that time. And the, I had to call the police in. I have the whole police around. And they're like, what are you doing? Why would you do this? Why would you take in somebody with this much risk? You put everybody in here at risk. How could you? And I remember just looking at them going, this is what we do. We do this every single day. We take in people every day who are at risk of being killed. Yeah. That's why we exist. This should not shock you as law enforcement. But then the one officer said, well, we really shouldn't be having any further discussions with Miss Thomas because, you know, She's testifying against us in another case, which we were. But, you know, the the beauty of being with an organization who allows you to partner but also hold systems to account, right, is I will play nice. I will, I will, but I'm going to be a voice. And if that might not go well, I'm sorry. We're going to do it. And the agency and the coalition will do that too. And so I just need young advocates to know we have your back. You know, you do need to bring voice. You don't need to take no for an answer. You need to ask why. I tell you the best advocates, and I say it all the time, are those that are curious. And when they are curious and when they want to go, that does not make sense to me. Why is it that way? And then they go find out why or they work to change it. And be ready to question, you know, the status quo. Just because we've been doing things for 100 years doesn't mean that that's the way it needs to be done. We need to question the status quo. Maybe it's just a, a me space, but I think you can do that through relationships, right? Yeah. So so you get in there, you meet folks, you have relationships. So that time you do have to call someone to task, whether that's a judge or a prosecutor or an attorney or whatever, or the person who starts the meeting with a bad joke, right? You're you're operating from a better place if you have those kind of relationships where you can kind of come back. Feel free to go back if you're a new advocate to go back to your director, your supervisor. Something doesn't look right. Open up your eyes as you're going into court. Does something Could something be better? Could the experience of a woman coming into this court be improved or be better if we just did things a little bit differently? See how other communities do their work. See how other states do their work. But I think there's a lot of pride in what KCADV has done, a lot of pride of what Kentucky has done. And we don't always get a lot of accolades, but Kentucky's done some phenomenal work with intimate partner violence. Well, we have zero monies as far as I'm concerned, as far as lobbying is concerned. So when you don't have any money, we're just really, honest to goodness, a grassroots lobbying effort. There is no money behind what we do. We don't put money in anybody's pockets to make any kind of changes about anything. So the grassroots efforts that we've utilized for the past you know, 35, 40 years is how we've got to where we are today. It wasn't about money because we didn't have any and we still don't have any. You know, we're still begging for money just to keep our programs going. So, you know, so we're still working on that evolution of our importance and how we are going to make change happen. You know, the only way I can see that happening is, again, Working across the aisles, making it a nonpartisan issue, that it is a social justice issue that we need to fix. Which is what I really love about KCADB and our member programs. It's grit. It's a lot of audacity. It's a lot of compassion. And so sometimes it might be nice to have that lobbyist, but I kind of like how we do our grassroots work. So thank you all ladies so much for being here. I've been listening to Darlene Thomas, the executive director of Greenhouse 17, and Ann Perkins, who's the executive director of Safe Harbor. And you've been listening to the KCADV podcast series on module one, history of domestic violence in Kentucky. 